As he mentioned, we're in the Psalms this morning, and that's a little bit different if you've been here for a while, because you know that we've been in the book of Romans since the beginning of the year, and we kind of came to the conclusion of that section that's there on faith in Romans chapter 4 that provided us an opportunity to sort of step away from the book for a moment and look at a few other topics that we want to look at this summer, and one of those is to spend a Sunday here in the Psalms. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 42. It is a joy anytime we have the opportunity to pause and to look at a particular psalm, particularly as it regards the way that they serve us and care for us and minister to our soul. And Psalm 42 is a psalm that in the back of the Bible that you'll see me carry, that I don't preach from, that I carry in different places and read from, and in the back there, I'll just make a note on places to go to if, if my mind is sort of failing me, what psalm to go to for comfort what psalm to go to for all sorts of different things. And, and where I just have written in the back there, what psalm to go to as it regards hope. There's where Psalm 42 is. If you see me come or one of the other pastors come to see you in your moment of need, in your time in the hospital or something like that, you may very well hear us read Psalm 42 to you. And if you come and visit us in the hospital... Brother or sister, I pray that you'd read Psalm 42 to me. I think it is that sort of a psalm. So as we turn our attention to it this morning, it's <clears throat> from a multitude of perspectives, I think. One, to, to serve us. I think there are people who need to hear exactly what it's saying this morning, who need to be exhorted to hope, but maybe also to equip us so that you'd have something in your toolbox as you care for people, and that is... The multitude would just have you give a series of platitudes to people that are sick and hurting and in desperate need, then instead you would have Psalm 42 to take to people and to serve people who are in need. So Psalm 42, if you'd read with me. For the choir director, a maskal of the songs, or of the sons of Korah, and maskal there talks about a, is a poem is a teaching poem, is a poem of instruction. That's going to be important because this is going to instruct us. The psalmist writes this, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the multitude and lead them in procession to the house of God. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of my, his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon, from the Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
as a shattering of my bones. My adversaries revile me while they say to me <clears throat> all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Well, I hope you would agree with me that contemporary wisdom would say, do not attempt to diagnose your health conditions by looking up your symptoms online. I bet that most of you have done that, particularly over the last few years, with whatever you have that situation that you have. It's as though when you do that to make sure that online medical sites don't minimize your diagnosis and thus create some sort of liability for themselves, they tend to maximize your diagnosis so that if you're wrong, you won't sue them and at least you'll be ecstatic that you don't have the black plague of the 1300s, right? They always tell you what seems to be the worst possible thing that you could have. And we always laugh about, you know, thinking about the guy that's sitting at the computer and he's typing in all of his symptoms as he's entering them in one by one, being very detailed about it, only to hit the button that says diagnosis and it says, congratulations, you have leprosy. It's not anything that you want to hear, right? So you sort of avoid that and you don't do that. It's not helpful to diagnose illnesses by looking up symptoms online. That's good contemporary advice. So let's just plow through that and forget that I even said all that and let's do that. What does the Mayo Clinic say about signs of depression? What do they list on their site? This is some of them, but not all of them. And how do you think about those signs of depression as it relates to Psalm 42? Mayo Clinic says feelings of sadness. Look at verse 6, what we just read. My soul is in despair within me. Mayo Clinic says, feelings of tearfulness. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. They say, uh, feelings of emptiness. Look at verse 9. Why have you forgotten me? They say, sleep disturbances, including insomnia. Verse 8, look at what it says. It seems like the psalmist is up all night. They say that a sign of depression is reduced appetite. Verse 3, it sounds like his tears are his food day and night. They say that a symptom is unexplained physical problems such as back pain or headaches. Look at verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. One Hebrew scholar writes that that can be translated, quote, in murder in my bones, where he's describing deep hurt, deep pain that is coming from within. I don't think it's a surprise then that many commentators, when they talk about this psalm, talk about the psalmist experiencing depression. Isn't it interesting that the psalms don't shy away from that? They don't seem to just sort of hide that or tuck that away, but they directly deal with those sorts of emotions. They don't shy away from emotions such as you see here. It's fascinating, too, that the Psalms occasionally give us this godly man, this faithful man. This is a righteous man here who would express things such as this. I think it helps us to see and to realize that no matter what our level of theological knowledge is, our spiritual maturity, our growth and sanctification, we're not beyond experiencing sorrow and despair. You're not immune to that. And that's where you come to in this psalm. 
The psalmist is expressing sorrow, feeling the absence here of God's presence, and yet there's something unusual that's in the midst of all that. He remains determined to wait for God in hope, absolutely sure of what God has promised. What kind of song is this? What do we say at the beginning? It's a mascal, right? It's about wisdom. It's about teaching you something. The, the psalm is teaching us something that you need to be reminded of. This is teaching us something that you need to hear again and again. That the godly man is not immune from despair. The godly man is not immune from despair, but yet when despair comes, the godly man is intentional in the way he acts, waiting in hope upon God. How does the psalm teach us to respond then where you find yourself in despair? when you find yourself in this spot. If you're not immune to it, maybe you're going, I've never experienced that. That doesn't mean that you're never going to experience that. Maybe you have experienced that. How do we respond to it? As people who know the Word of God, love the Lord, trust what He has to say, believing that the Bible is sufficient, is it sufficient to deal with this in your own life? Well, Psalm 42 gives you four biblical responses from the godly man in despair. And the first is this, in verses 1 through 4. Confess despair to God. Confess despair to God. This guy that's here writing this is taking the emotions of his spiritual despair to God. And don't, don't just blow through that. But, but I mean, that, that seems like it's very much on the surface, very much basic here. But isn't it interesting that God doesn't say anything in this psalm? God is very quiet here. God doesn't say anything in this psalm, and yet that doesn't keep the psalmist from speaking to him. The psalmist keeps talking about God seems like he is a long ways away from me here. He's expressing feeling far from God, so far that, what does he say? His tears and his enemies are saying, where is your God? And yet the psalmist is speaking to God, who he may feel, though, is too far to hear him. This is his response to what's going on with inside of him instead of simply acting as though he's too far away to hear so he doesn't even say anything at all to him. So his prayer life dies, dries up. He's uttering the words, the psalm here is a demonstration of faith. He's acting on truth instead of all the emotions that are welling up within him. But he comes here and he confesses what is with inside of him. Well, what does the psalmist confess? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he confesses here a thirsty soul. A thirsty soul. The first part of his confession to God is that his soul is thirsty for God. Look at what he says. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The way that he helps us to understand what's going on within the depths of his soul is to give us this picture here of a deer that's longing for water. Now, if you go online and look, and you think of the times that you've been to the little Christian gift shop or something, and you see Psalm 42 on something, what do you get the picture of? You get this picture of this deer that's sitting there lapping up water, right? In this most serene picture where everything's okay and everything's green. But that's not what he's saying at all, is it? The way he helps us understand what's going on here is to give us this picture of this deer. And it's not a deer that's drinking, it's a deer that's looking for water. 
a deer that's panting, a deer that's demonstrating that it has a real and a serious thirst. Again, it's just this illustration, it's just this picture, but all these things come into your mind. Why is he doing this? Well, when you think about where he's at, I mean, there could have been a multitude of predators chasing the deer, but he's escaped them here, and in the, the fury of all of that, and all the exertion of energy and all that, he's thirsty. He may be far from home, and we're at home, he knows where water brooks are found here in this place. He doesn't know where they're at. And, and so there's this serious thirst that's demonstrated here. And as desperate, he says, as a creature like that is in need of water, searching for streams of water, what does he say? So is my soul longing and yearning for God. Just note, longing, yearning, panting for God, almost exclusively, almost, we'll get there, Almost exclusively throughout this psalm, the writer uses the name Elohim when he's speaking about God. This is the name that regularly appears throughout book two of the psalms, and you see it showing up here. But, but look at what he does. He confesses, my soul thirsts for God. So his soul is thirsty for God. And in this way, he's expressing what you'll see later on in the psalms when you come to David writing Psalm 63, verse 1, where he says, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so he says that same sort of an idea here. And then look what Psalm 42 does after that. His confession just begins to intensify step after step. My soul thirsts for God. Then what does he say? For the living God. He, he is identifying here the God of Israel, who is unlike the gods of the people, who is living and acting and sovereign and majestic. And then his confession just intensifies all the more. So my soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Then he says, when shall I come and appear before God? This, that. Is, that's the desire of his heart. As each of those cries intensifies there, it comes to this climax where he's expressing a deep-seated desire for God's presence. Did you just know, this is, a, again, a godly man. He is not here denying God's omnipresence. Not denying that God is everywhere present and has access to all portions of reality but he genuinely feels as though God is far away. Behind all of this emotion is a desire to be in fellowship with God. Look at, look at the heart behind his plea here. The, the heart you find behind this man's plea, I think, is something absent from a lot of churches. And it's something I pray is not missing amongst our church, but instead is cultivated here. What is that? that men and women have a high view of God, that they desire to fellowship with Him, to worship Him, to glorify Him. It is only a godly man who truly longs for God. Only a God-fearing man yearns for fellowship with Him, like you see here in this text. What do sinners do? They hate the light. John 3.20 says, fearing their deeds will be exposed, they hate the light. So what do they do? They, the, the, the picture there that always comes to my mind when you see them fleeing the light is like, like a cockroach, right? You turn on the light, it floods the room, and they run to the darkness. Those practice truth come to the light, yearn for the light, want to be close to the light. They know the voice of the shepherd of their souls, and they long to hear the shepherd's voice and know the nearness of his presence. That's the distinction here with this man. Only a man or a woman with a high view of God 
which is a biblical view of God, is even capable of experiencing, I think, the despair that's described here, a sense of truly feeling far from God. Because he's the greatest object of their affection. He's the greatest desire of their soul. That's why they're even capable of feeling this way. Those who hate God, friend, they want to feel far from him. They don't want God to observe and to see what's going on and how they rebel against him. But not the godly man. The godly man wants to glorify him, wants to enjoy him forever, wants to be in his presence, longs for him like you see here. So because this man has a high view of God, he's able to come to this God and to confess to him all of these emotions that are rising up within him. Why? Because this is the God that's big enough to handle it. This is the God that's not going to get mad in a particular way, but is able to handle all of the things that are going on within this man that he already knows what's going on within him. So he can come here and he can confess his sorrow and he can confess his heaviness of heart and the desperate nature of his situation. He's coming here and and describing his isolation and the distance that he knows from his people and the place where he once gathered with them to worship God. Has your soul ever longed for God? Has it ever longed for God like this? Is it capable of doing so? What is it that your soul really longs for? You begin to see distinctions here. I think some of you could easily look at all this and go, I know exactly where he's at. I know exactly what's going on within him as he's saying this. And there might be others, sadly, in here that I think, well, certainly not, because I'm a Christian. Surely I wouldn't feel this way. But, but as you'll come to see, again, a Christian isn't beyond experiencing what the psalmist is confessing here, that he is experiencing when, when your soul is in despair, when your soul is sorrowful, where do you find yourself going over and over and over again? It tells you something about the condition of your soul. It tells you something about the relationship that you have with God. And, and I think this is where the psalmist is our, it comes to our help right here. That The psalms put lyrics to the sounds coming from our heartstrings. And if you've laid alone in a hospital room and you've prayed for God to intervene, to show up, to do something about it, only to wake up day after day in the same room with no change. And if, you, if, you're, if your job or your school maybe is taking you far from those that you know and love and you desperately miss them and you prayed again and God, for God to do something with this and yet there's only been silence, I think you know that it can seem as though God is rather far away. And if you know God and you love God, that silence, that distance can be agonizing. Christian... You're not sinning. You're not denying the omnipresence of God to confess as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you. You are confessing in that the same thing that the psalmist is confessing here. I know God. I love God. I adore God. I want desperately to have a sense of his nearness and his presence once again. I think as we look at all this, sometimes we can too easily be like Job's counselors And what we would have a tendency to do with our head full of theology is run up to the guy in Psalm 42 and say, well, certainly, certainly, friend, you can't escape the presence of God. You know, your theology is all wrong, man, because you don't know Psalm 139 because Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. And we just rush in and pound people with theology. And miss that there's more theology than just what we have on the forefront of our brain at the moment. 
Certainly there's a time and a place for Psalm 139 in teaching on God's omnipresence, and it will be biblical discernment that helps you to understand when that time is. But as you see here in the sovereign will of God, there's also a time and a place where he allows your soul to thirst for him. And we ought not just to try to casually explain that away as though the person's feeling this way just because their theology has a hole in it. I think maybe discerning counsel is what you find here in this psalm, confessing that we would direct people to confessing the yearning of their heart for God, to God, the God that feels so very far away. Look at the second thing that he does here in confessing in this section. Well, what does the psalmist confess next in verse 3? A tearful expression. A tearful expression. So the second part of this confession is in verse 3. It's this tearful expression. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You're going to find out when we get to verse 10 here that this godly man's tears are asking the exact same question that his enemy is asking. But there is a difference. His tears here are this tangible witness of what's going on within his soul, namely that God feels far away. His tears come from this this sense of God's distance. When he sees his tears, he's reminded of why they're there. This is different than when his enemies ask this question, when they ask it in verse 10. When they ask the question, it's with the intent to harm him in a most nasty way, that they would sort of leave him with this stinging remark. And you think about that in the context of his enemies in verse 10. When this psalm was written, that, that, that's what we need to have in mind as we see his enemies asking this. When the psalm was written, there's really nobody that's an atheist on the face of the earth. Everybody believes in some deity. Everybody believes in some God at this point. So his enemies come along here, and he's in his misery, and they ask him the question, where is your God? They're basically saying, what sort of deity do you worship? Is he any use to you right now? Look at the condition you're in. That's painful. We're in verse 3, and the question's the same. Verse 3, it's from the godly man's sorrow of feeling this distance from God. And the way that he describes these tears, what does it indicate? His sorrow is so great and so heavy on his heart here that he cannot eat. Tears are a regular part of his day. So look, he's confessed his thirst, he's confessed his tears, and now he confesses what's been on his mind What's the last thing that he confesses in verse 4? He confesses this treasured memory. Verse 4, These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the multitude and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. A a multitude-keeping festival. He's probably recalling the festival, the Passover, first fruits, and tabernacles. That would have brought all the people here together. And and remember, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah, meaning they have a responsibility as it regards the temple worship, the tabernacle worship. And one of their chief responsibilities, according to 1 Chronicles 6 and 2 Chronicles 20, is music. And so they would have been there for all of those festivals. And for some reason, the psalmist doesn't tell us why. All of this is a memory now. It's not a present reality. And and as treasured as this memory of these wonderful days is to the psalmist, it's also a painful reminder that he's living in a much different day today as he's thinking about this. Once he was leading others to be near to God, 
instead of today where he's feeling the distance of God. Once his voice was the lead for joy and thanksgiving during the festival, instead of today his voice is the voice of despair and thirst and tears. Aren't memories like that sometimes? You love the wonderful days, you remember the wonderful days, and then sometimes you're like, why is today not like that anymore? The pleasant memories of the past have become something of a discouragement for him. Once there was joy, that all seems distant now. It all seems like it's not ever going to return. All of it seeming to feel sorrow in this difficult time because of this distance, this lack of prospect of coming back. I think this is where the psalm is helpful. I mean, this is not maybe the most exciting thing that you want to hear and be reminded of, but it's not beyond what the Bible is talking about and deals with here. And it helps us through this. This is a reality. And I was reminded again this week of how much of a reality it is. You, Colin reminded me a couple days ago just how personal this psalm is to him. And by the way, if you don't know it, Colin's extra cool now because he was on a podcast this week. And you know what? You should listen to what he has to say there. And there's a reason why the guy doing the podcast asked him to do it. Because of all the things that he recently went through, in talking to him after he did the podcast, in listening to what he said in the podcast, he was saying once again what a comfort this psalm was to him as he was laying there in the hospital with pneumonia. So you know something about the psalm now. You know something about the situation he went through. Have you thought about that? The person who leads us in music was separated from the multitude that gathers here. Does this psalm not deal exactly with some of the things that we've had going on right here? Does it not deal with what's going on with him? The person who led us with a voice of joy and thanksgiving was isolated in a hospital room for weeks. And as much as he's expressed how much the prayers and visitations from everyone was incredibly meaningful... You might just ask him how meaningful it was when he showed back up here to gather to sing with all of you. As personal as Psalm 42 was to him, pray that it would be the same to you. Maybe in the past, maybe in the days ahead. I want you to see something as it relates to that here. Look in verse 3 and 4. You see the godly man in the psalm here He's not like those people that are grumbling about how showing up at church and gathering with other believers really doesn't matter. You hear that on occasion. You hear that maybe more than on occasion, saying such things as, why do you make such a big deal out of coming to church? Why, why care about being around other Christians? There is nowhere in the Bible that it says you must attend church. They sort of blow past Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and the forsaking the assembly of the saints, right? That comes right after talking about how we can draw near to him if we're in Christ. The guy here in Psalm 42 isn't like the guy that's rather unconcerned about being at church. In fact, there's no other place that this guy would rather be in this text. And here he's unable to gather, and as a result of his being unable to gather, his soul is really in despair. Why? Because the Bible may not say, thou must go to church every Sunday. But it does make clear that those that have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture yearn to be with other believers worshiping their God together. First Chronicles 16.29 speaks about coming before Him, worshiping the Lord in holy array. Then you go into the Psalms and you see this over and over again. Psalm 84, 1 through 4. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. 
That's a man with a right heart wanting to be amongst God and God's people saying this. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There is no place else this sort of a man wants to be but amongst God's people because he is so near to God. Psalm 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There is no other place that the godly man would rather be than with God's people in God's house joining voices of joy and thanksgiving. And to be separated is painful and you hear that pain within this psalm. So the psalmist, look at what he's done. He's confessed his thirst for God. He's confessed his tears. He's confessed this memory. Now, all this revealing is great despair in his soul, reminding us that like him in our darkest moments, we can come before God. And we can confess what's going on in your soul. You don't have to sort of hide this from him in any sort of a way. That this is the first place that we ought to go. There's a multitude of other places that we're tempted to go. We're tempted to go, tempted to, go to our friends. We're tempted to go to some sort of a substance that will disconnect us from reality so we won't feel this way anymore. We're tempted to go run all sorts of places. The psalmist says, run to God, confess to him what's going on. This isn't just a psalm helping us vocalize our spiritual depression, though. How does it teach us? It teaches us to confess to confess your despair to God. Second, in verse 5, it teaches us to wait in hope for God. Wait in hope for God. When you are in the Psalms and you're studying the Psalms, look at where the speech is coming from and look at who it's directed to because it changes. And it changes right here and that tells us a lot. Note in this text here, you, you see this going on here. You see something very interesting. This guy is no longer confessing what is going on within him to God. Verse 5, who's he talking to? His own soul. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Who is the you in that sentence? It matters. He's talking to himself. We kind of look at that and go, that's odd. Why are you in despair? That word despair. Why are you sinking down? Why are you depressed, my soul? Why have you become disturbed? That word disturbed can mean to growl. Uh, right? Why have you become disturbed? This is a description of what's going on inside of the man, and it shows itself by what he's confessed here. But look at what he's doing. He is confronting his own soul. He's not just sort of ignoring his condition or trying to sort of cut it off from reality, but he's actually addressing it here. He's addressing it head on with a biblical exhortation. He has asked his soul a couple of questions. And then in verse 5, he exhorts his soul to this, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help for the salvation of his presence. What does he urge his soul to do? Hope. Do you know what that word is? In many other places, it's translated as wait. Your LSB translates the word as wait. Wait for God. One Hebrew scholar says the word here communicates patient standing and wait for one greater than oneself. You hear wait again in that. 
So what is offered in response to this despairing soul? Wait on God. Oh, doesn't that make you really excited? Because you really love to wait, don't you? That'll make you growl again in your soul. Sort of, uh. If there's one thing that we really don't like to do, it has to be waiting. And as a result of that, there's all sorts of systems and procedures that are built in so you don't have to wait. You go to the theme park, you get a fast pass so you don't have to wait. And you order something at a restaurant or you get on their waiting list so you don't have to wait whenever you go in. We'll do almost anything in the world rather than wait. But if you're looking at this... There are times in your life, Christian, where in the providential plan of a sovereign God, he will have us wait for our good and for his glory. He uses waiting here to change us, to sanctify us, to mature us. And our waiting is a demonstration of hope in him. You know, there's some guy up north that said, don't waste your life. And we tend to cling to that. Don't waste your waiting, right? Don't waste your waiting. Waiting upon God, when you think about it, is found all throughout Scripture. It's found all throughout the Psalms once again. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 62, verse 1. My soul waits in silence for God only. From His, uh, from his is my salvation. In verse 5 of Psalm 62. My soul wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from Him. Psalm 130, verse 6. My soul waits for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. It's not just an accident. And just because the Lord can't think of anything else to do within the confines of history that you find people all throughout the biblical account waiting. Over and over again you see people waiting. And that's for a purpose. And it matters how we wait, does it not? This isn't waiting and grumbling about it the whole time. How is it that we wait? Well, Scripture tells you how you wait. You can wait in a way that dishonors God and sort of misses the point, or you can wait in a way that glorifies God. Scripture says that when we wait, we wait with patience. We wait with patience. Psalm 37, verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. So we wait patiently. But we also wait with confidence. Micah 7.7 7, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We wait with patience. We wait with confidence. And we wait in such a way that we're sure that this is good. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. So patience, confidence, knowing that this is good, and knowing that this comes with strength. You probably remember Isaiah 40 verse 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It matters how you wait. It matters how you approach waiting, how you think about waiting, how you're found waiting. Just noting all this, I think, and what you see throughout Scripture is that the godly man doesn't come out of this despair having waited on God the same as he was before. When he exits waiting, he exits waiting a different man. God uses waiting. Spurgeon argued towards this end where he said, hope is the grace that swims through the waves. Oh, hope is the grace that swims though the waves roar in trouble. Spurgeon said, in the garden of hope, 
grow the laurels for future victories, the roses of coming joys, the lilies of approaching peace. He's talking about there that in the process of waiting, it's equipping you for what's going to come in the future. And if this is you, friend, and you're waiting upon God, if you think about it biblically, you're in really good company, are you not? We've been looking over the last few weeks in Romans as it regards Abraham. What do you find Abraham doing for decades? He's waiting for a child to be born. In 1 Samuel on Sunday evenings, we're watching David waiting to take the throne. Israel was waiting. Ruth was waiting. The prophets were accustomed to waiting. The apostles wait. We demonstrate something of waiting whenever we gather at the Lord's table once a month. As we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, we're waiting for the Lord to return. But look at what he says here, who he's waiting on. Why wait on God? Because for the psalmist, there's nothing else that's going to satisfy this guy in Psalm 42. Nothing else will meet the longing of his soul. It must be God, and it's only going to be God. And where do you hear waiting and confidence here? Well, look at the text in verse 5. For I shall again praise him for the help of the salvation of his presence. Those are words of hope. He is sure, he is confident that his situation is not going to be as it is always in this day. And he speaks here of his presence. This is the very thing he's been missing. Church, we need to see here that the answer is being given to us from the all-sufficient word. And the answer that it's giving to a soul that's in despair, that's longing for God, is this, to wait for Him. To wait for Him. It's not to distract yourself. There, again, the whole economy built on attempting to dull or distract you from despair, instead of like the psalmist exhorting you, you exhorting your own soul to hope in God. And I think if this guy, again, lived in our world, think of the advice he's going to receive from those that he tells his soul is in despair. That they would tell him, well, you need to go binge watch a television series and forget about all your problems. You need to find a doc and a prescription to dull the feelings of despair. You need to clear your mind, empty it out. You need to consume something, anything that will dull the pain and detach you from reality. But none of that actually deals with the heart of the matter. And the psalmist comes here and he's dealing with the heart of the matter because he's directing his soul here to hope to an unwavering determination upon one that's greater than himself. Friend, when your soul is in despair, are you going to wait upon God? Will you give him your attention? Will you give him your trust? Will you believe that in the process of all of this waiting that he can actually mature you through this? Will you wait in confidence? Will you wait with patience? Will you wait being absolutely certain that this is for your good? Look at how he teaches us again to respond. We confess our despair to God. We wait and hope for God. The third thing, verses 6 through 10, we recall the nature of God. We recall the nature of God. You don't go empty your mind. That's not helpful here. But we fill our mind with the truth of who God is and what He's done. The, the object of His words again changes here in verse 6. Addressing God again. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Miser. He's remembering his God here. He's even remembering his distance from his people here, as painful as that is, like he talked about in verse 4. And yet you get the sense from this verse of the psalmist, you get the sense of his distance from Israel, that he's somewhere outside of Israel to the north at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And if he's there, he's a great distance from worshiping God with his people, there with the peaks of Hermon, these mountains that rise up 9,000 feet. And look at what he says in the midst of that in verse 7. Deep calls to deep. 
He's, he's again giving us a word picture here of swells calling up to swells to rise up at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Another word picture of all that's pounding here upon him, rolling over him as though he were being pounded upon by this river of sorrows. And look at, look at who he says is directing all of this. These are God's waterfalls, God's breakers, God's waves rolling upon him. God has, in this way, he's recognizing, has allowed the floodgates to be opened upon this guy, and he knows it. And yet, in the midst of all that, look at verse 8. You get the sounds of hope here that's built upon the very nature of God that he knows, that he remembers. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. Would you note that in the middle of all of this mess of despair and waves of sorrow crashing upon his life, here in the middle of this psalm in verse 8, now the man calls God Yahweh instead of Elohim. I don't think that's by accident. This is the very personal name of God that he used to reveal himself to Israel. Now linked here with his commanding his loving kindness Yahweh is linked here with Hesed, his covenant-keeping love. Even in the torn of all these troubles where he's just said that he finds himself feeling like God is now far away, he's far away from the days of worshiping him with his people, he reminds himself of his God, that this is the God who has revealed himself as I was, I am, I will be. This is the God who keeps covenant even when he feels like he's far away. That this is the truth that verse 8 shows us governs both day and night. This is the truth that for this man fills his prayers. This is what fills the mind of the godly man who is in despair. He, he may lay awake in the night, yes, as we've seen, but Yahweh's song will be there with me in the night. This is his confession. Look at verse 9 and 10. It's just again another reminder of the nature of God. I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Is a shattering of my bones. My adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? In the midst of all of this, what's he identify God as? My rock. <clears throat> he is the place of refuge. This is the kind of place I think that you'd want to find if you were in the midst of this torrent of all the waters that he's talking about, right? That you'd find a rock that was immovable to cling to. And he is asking this God, Yahweh, who is loving, who has made a promise, that he's just said has strength and that's perfectly reliable. He's again coming to this God with this question, have you forgotten me? Notice all my mourning instead of rejoicing, all while oppressed by the enemy here. And I told you earlier, shattering my bones, that expresses pain. And the enemy saying, where is your God? That's a painful, stinging thing to hear. And yet, sensing that he's been forgotten, being oppressed by his enemies, hearing the taunts of their questions, where is your God? He perseveres and continues to speak to this God. Because he knows God will remember him. He's a personal God. He's a loving God. He's a strong God. By the way, have you ever thought just how it taunts your enemies? How it taunts your enemies to keep praying to the God who they're trying desperately to convince you doesn't exist. I just think again of a lady that came up to me and told me about a godly lady that she was angry at and was just frustrated because she, is, she, know, she knew this lady continued to pray and what if God answers her prayers? What? It was like she was taunting the enemy by her simplicity of praying. I think that happens sometimes. 
But would you just note, again, something that's very interesting from Psalm 42? The voice of God's missing in all this. You're near the end of the psalm, and he hasn't said anything. And the psalmist is still agonizing over feeling far from God, and he asks him these questions, and he really doesn't get any sort of an answer from him. God is quiet in this psalm. The only thing you hear are questions from the psalmist expressing despair. The only thing you hear are the taunts of the enemies here. And the only other thing you hear is the unwavering hope of the psalmist. Isn't Scripture sometimes uncomfortable in that way? It's uncomfortably real. How does the psalmist teach us to respond? Confess despair to God, wait in hope for God, recall the nature of God, and finally, verse 11, keep waiting in hope in God. Keep waiting. <clears throat> verse 11 is basically a repeat of verse 5. If you know anything about the Psalms and you've studied this Psalm, then you'll know that a lot of people say Psalm 43 is a connection to this Psalm and they go hand in hand together. Guess what? If you get to the end of Psalm 43, what happens? He's still waiting. He's still waiting in hope for one greater than himself. One commentator said to hope, is to wait upon God's perfect timing with a confidence and strong trust in God about the future. We might add this, that that's even in spite of your circumstances, even in spite of a soul that's in despair. And what you see as you come to the end of all this, I think it's something that's fascinating. It's not all neat and tidy and all tied, all the loose ends tied up right here. God hasn't rushed in to sort of save the day. When you leave Psalm 42, this guy's waiting. We'll get to Psalm 130 to sing it in a minute. You're much the same there. The verse before the last verse in that says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. One final thing I want you to think about knowing all this that you know now about Psalm 42, there's not really a direct quote of Psalm 42 in the New Testament. There's a lot of Psalms quoted in the New Testament, not really this one. But I think there is one place where you hear and you see a man who sounds a lot like the psalmist. A man whose soul is thirsting for his father and whose father seems far, far away. A man who instead of tears from despair goes even further sweating drops of blood. A man pleading with his father and whose father doesn't audibly respond. He audibly responded at his baptism. He audibly responded at the transfiguration. In that moment in the garden as Jesus is crying out to him, there's silence. When, when you come to those final hours of his life before he's arrested, he's there in the garden in prayer. And I think we could very much say that his soul is in despair. Listen to Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Luke's gospel does tell you that an angel came from heaven to strengthen him, but even after it records that, Luke's gospel records this. <clears throat> Being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And, and if you remember all that, what happens next? He gets up from the ground and he's still waiting in hope upon his father. And as he goes, hours later, nailed to the cross, it's as though he's still waiting. And remember, he doesn't say, why have you forgotten me from the cross? But this man, this son, asks an even more painful question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 16, 34. 
I always find it interesting there. He doesn't say, Yahweh, Yahweh. He doesn't say, my father, my father. It's almost like the psalmists in that distance of saying Elohim. Who has ever known despair like Jesus? And yet, in the example that he gives us, when you think about the gospel accounts, you see unwavering hope. Unwavering hope upon his father, sure that he will raise him, sure that he will ascend to his father's side, sure that he will be there pleading at his father's side, faithful to the day that he returns, the day that every knee will bow before him. And when you think about it, he's the one that deals with the thing that your soul ought to actually be despairing over. The whole psalm is about feeling a separation from God. And Christian, you may feel a separation from God, but because of the man who was there in the garden, who was faithful, who kept waiting, who walks all the way to the cross to death, because of what he did, you can be reconciled to God, can you not? Your greatest problem has been dealt with. The very thing that keeps you from God, your sin, has been dealt with. This man whose soul was in despair brings us to the God that we feel so far away from at times. The godly man is not immune from despair, yet when despair comes, he is intentional. He waits in hope upon God, and he keeps waiting. Confess your despair, hope in God, cling to who God is, and continue to wait in God's perfect timing till that day that he brings this waiting to a conclusion, to the day in which there is no more waiting, no more sorrow, because hope has been made sight. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the Psalms. They minister to our soul. You speak to us through the Psalms. You put words on what's going on within our heart. We pray that we'd be a people who thirst for you and who are willing to wait for you should you direct it to be so in our life. Help us to confess both the joys and sorrows of our soul to you. Give us an even greater sense of your majesty from your word so that we would know for certain you're reminded that you can definitely bear all things that weigh down our heart, that we can bring them to you. Remind us that in our sorrows, the Scripture directs us not to dull or ignore our feelings and emotions and what we're sensing, but that we may confess all these things and direct them to you, and that we are exhorted to hope in you. So we ask that you would fill our minds with the truth of how you've revealed yourself. As the psalmist confessed, you're, you're loving, you're covenant-keeping, you're a refuge for those in the storm. And we ask that you would find us faithful in our waiting. Find us faithful in our waiting for our good and your glory. May we confess along with the psalmist in Psalm 71, I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. May this bring glory to your name. In Christ's name, amen.